please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. We preach expository sermons. We are expounding the text, and so it will help you a great deal if you will always keep it open in front of you. We've been looking over these past few weeks at why the Lord Jesus came, why the incarnation of our Lord. We began with Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity in the fall of Adam, and original sin, the corruption of our natures that necessitated a Redeemer. We looked last week at what it meant that Jesus is mediator. We looked together at 1 Timothy chapter 2, the only mediator between God and man. There is no other. We look at this passage this morning, and we will see four reasons, according to this text, for which our Savior came. All of these, of course, interrelated. Next week, we will look at another passage, and then on Christmas Eve, the ultimate reason that He came, we will preach Christmas Eve. And so I hope that you can be here for that service as well. Hebrews chapter 2, we will begin reading at verse 10. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we ask in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the only mediator between God and man, that the powerful work of the Holy Spirit would attend the reading and exposition of the Word of God. Convert us that we may be converted, prayed Jeremiah, and we pray the same. Continue to work in the hearts and lives of thy people, that through the persevering grace granted to us, we may have an ever-deepening understanding of the doctrine that is taught in Holy Scripture, that doctrine which is for life, that we may live full and free lives, that we may live obediently to the one who has saved us and redeemed us, for unless we are obedient, we will not be happy. May our happiness be in bringing glory to the name of God, no matter what comes in life. And grant, Heavenly Father, that the scripture that we peer into this morning, as we see the reasons for which our Savior came, will also deepen our love in response to the great love that has been shown to us. And Father, work in the hearts of the lost that do not know Christ, that they may see their need of the Savior. And perhaps someone who has sat under the preaching of the word and has never really heard it, because that person has not heard the voice of Jesus Christ through the Spirit's drawing. So, Father, do hear and answer our prayers, and may Christ be exalted. For all of our weakness, that is our desire, that Jesus Christ be praised. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. This is the Word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. At this time of the year, we focus special attention on the coming of Christ into the world, but how much attention do we give to the question, why did he come? And our entire month has been focused upon that question, why did he come? Now, not to attempt to drain dry the text before us, which is never our attempt, let us see four interrelated answers to the question, why Christmas? Why did the Son of God come into this world on that first Christmas morning? What answers does this text give to us of that all-important question? Why did he come? The first answer of this text is, he came to suffer for our sin. Now, we did not read verse 9, but verse 9 is essential to understanding verse 10. And in verse 9, we read, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now that everyone that is found there at the end of verse 9 is uh, translated in the authorized version, every man. It is, um, uh, it, it is a word that is in the masculine. It would be appropriate to translate every man, although man is not in the original text. But verse 10 actually tells us how we should translate the end of verse 9 when it tells us that he is bringing many sons to glory. And so when it tells us that he tasted death for every one, the word actually could be translated with this in mind appropriately. He suffered and he came to taste death for every son. For all of the people of God who had been chosen in eternity past, for all of the needy people of God who are sitting here this morning, for every son and for every daughter, he came in order that verse 9 tells us he might suffer for us. And there was no other way but incarnation and atonement. He must become man. He must obey the law that we broke. He must go to the cross and shed his blood to pay the penalty of our sins if indeed we are to be saved. And that's part of the meaning of the word fitting in verse 10. It was fitting. It means that it is true to God's own nature, true to his purpose, necessary, if you will. Now, historically, there have been three views on the necessity of the cross, the necessity of the atonement. One view is that God must send his son to die for sinners. It was absolutely necessary. That is to say, he had to do it. But no, certainly that is not correct. In absolute freedom, the Son of God came. A second view is that God could have forgiven sin without the cross, that he chose to use the cross, but that he could in his sovereignty simply have 
done away with our sins. But no, this does not do justice to all of God's attributes. As James Henley Thornwell put it, God's will is determined by the perfections of his nature. And God could not be just and forgive us without the cross. The true viewpoint is this, that God did not have to forgive us, but having determined to do so, there is only one way that he could forgive sinners consistent with his nature, and that is by incarnation and atonement. God cannot receive sinners without the satisfaction to his justice that the text calls propitiation. And this he did through the cross of Christ. And so the great presupposition is that God cannot simply overlook sin. If a less costly sacrifice would have served the purpose, that route would have been taken. That Christ must be a propitiation through his blood for God to be the justifier of the ungodly. Only in this way could he forgive, pardon, and declare righteous, ungodly sinners like us. So against the view that God simply must do this, that it was an absolute necessity, we must stress the divine freedom. God did not have to send his son, and oh, does this not fill your heart with a sense of the grace of it all. He did not have to send his son, and the son willingly came into this world. The Father freely loved us. The Son willingly came. The Holy Spirit lovingly applies redemption to our hearts. God did not have to do this for us. We live in a day in which we think we're owed so much. We were owed hell. We have not deserved this. We have not earned this. He has come to save us in His sovereign freedom. And against this second view that God could forgive in some other way, the answer is no, no, there was no other way consistent with his holiness, consistent with his righteousness, consistent with his justice, but the payment of the penalty of our sins and the satisfaction of divine wrath. No, no, but rather Jesus came to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself, and there was no other way, and there was no other than the infinite, eternal second person of the Trinity who could have come and shed his blood for us on the cross. Now, children who are here this morning, boys and girls, you think at this time of the year of the little infant that was born in Bethlehem of Judea long ago, and well, you should. But do you, boys and girls, do you see why he came? The eternal God became man without ceasing to be God so that he might obey the law that we broke. And each of us is a lawbreaker, boys and girls. So that he might pay the penalty of the sin. And that penalty was a debt that we could never have paid. He must be God that his sacrifice have infinite value for our sins so that in his true humanity as he was weighed down under the wrath of God, he might pay the great debt that we owed. And so that little baby, boys and girls, was God in the flesh. And that's what incarnation means. The incarnation means enfleshment. He actually became a man. And you sing it every year. All praise to the eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood, choosing a manger for thy throne, while worlds on worlds are thine alone. What do you sing in the hymn, O come all ye faithful? 
Every year, children, you sing, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. And I want to say to you, children, that there's much theology, there's much about God in that for you to grow into and to come to understand, but the point is clear, God became man born of a virgin. Or in the hymn, What Child Is This That We Have Sung?, why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. We sing it every Christmas, these old grand hymns that are so true to the Bible. And there we sing that it required nails to pierce him through, that we might be free from our sins, that we might be right with God. Parents, let me say something to you. The Lord is worthy of the most exalted language. Our pedestrian age simply is not capable of producing a steady stream of hymns of the old quality. I hope that changes with a great revival that God would send to the church, but we are not capable of doing that by and large now. Is it, too much, is it too much to ask that a child learn that mean estate means humble? Is it too much for a child to learn that hail means greet or welcome? Do you from time to time pull down the old authorized version and read it to them so that they can hear the beauty of it? We've lost much of the beauty that should be associated with the exalted theology of the Reformed faith. So in this rootless world that has invaded the church, don't you think that covenant theology means that we should be passing on to our children the best that our fathers have given to us? And I add especially the Psalms and the metrical Psalms for singing. When I was a little boy, a child, we were taught in the public school, no less, let all mortal flesh keep silence, and all the other great hymns, by the way. And I remember being overwhelmed with a sense of awe. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. What does this mean? All these words, these deep, rich words. Now, they could have given to me a hymn, a song, and I could have understood every word as a little child, but it would not have hovered over me. It would not have worked within my heart. The exalted language of the hymn actually helped me to see that there was an exalted theology there, an exalted Christ there. I couldn't have put it that way then, but that was what was happening in my heart. And I went to my teacher, and I asked my teacher to explain these things to me. And my teacher in the public school could explain the meaning of those words to me. Other sorts of songs would not have brought the prolonged meditation and sense of awe that, 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 that those sorts of words brought. Only the high, exalted language could do that. Language that befitted the theme as we have sung this morning. No charge for that, by the way, parents, but it's extremely important, I think, that we grasp. So children, do you see that this little baby was born in a manger it was God in the flesh. He came to suffer, to bleed, and to die for us. That's why he came. Well, he came to remove sin, to justify sinners through the incarnation and atonement. 
Do you know Christ as your Savior from sin? Is your personal trust in that personal Lord and Savior? Do you know him? Well, secondly, he came to identify with us. We read this in verse 11 in particular. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Sanctification here probably means setting apart by atonement. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And he reflects upon our union with him, his union with us, his identification with us. Two natures, one person. Children, not two persons, not one nature. No, God and man, two natures, perfectly united, one person. Now that's hard for us to understand. Yet it is the miracle of miracles without which we would be lost forever. We could not be saved. Without this miracle, you could not know God. You could not be accepted by him. His true manhood is stressed in the text where it says in verse 11 that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Frankly, it's very difficult to translate. It's exonos. It's of one, literally, in the text. He's saying he shared in our common humanity. That's what he's saying. In verse 10, he's called the pioneer of their salvation, who was made perfect through sufferings. That means that his truly human sufferings brought him to the goal for which he became incarnate. He had to face death. He had to grapple with death. He had to go through death. He had to suffer death in, in order to defeat death. This is the perfection of his work of which the writer of Hebrews speaks in these very thick and wonderful words. And in verses, verses 14 through 17, we see references to his true humanity throughout. But here's the point. In his true humanity, he was, according to verse 10, the pioneer, the pathfinder, we might translate it, or the forerunner who has led many sons to glory open the way for many sons to go into glory. Never forget that his human nature is as real as his deity. That he wears our human nature glorified, but he wears our human nature on the throne. That he came as man, that he ascended as man, that he remains forever God-man, two distinct natures and one per person forever. And as our priest, verse 12, quotes from Psalm 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Will I sing your praise? Our Savior sings in the midst of his brethren. Granted a numerous posterity through his death, he now leads our praises. He is the leader of this service of worship and acknowledges us before his father as his brethren before God, so identified he with us that he calls us brethren, that he shared a common humanity. What miracle, what wonder, what grace is Christmas. And children, again, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Here's the answer. Here is how it can happen. Here is how it is done. It is done by Jesus, who became man, so that he might lead many children to glory. Jesus was born to die that believers in him might live and that forever. And so he came to identify with us. And now specifically, let us focus thirdly on another reason that he came. He came 
to destroy death. Verses 14 through 16, let's read again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in order to destroy death. Verse 14 tells us that required that he be human. Now why? Because sin happened, the fall happened through human nature. Adam was a man in human nature. In Adam's fall, we sin at all. Leo, long ago in letter 31, said so beautifully, we should not be able to make use of the conqueror's victory if it had not been won, if it had been won outside our nature. If the victory had been won outside our nature, it would not have benefited you and me. Only by Jesus becoming man without ceasing to be God, becoming the God-man, only then could the victory over death take place and benefit us. He did not take on himself the nature of angels, but of Abraham. By the way, why does the writer of Hebrews tell us, why does he stress in this passage that he helps the offspring of Abraham? Why does he not say the offspring of Adam? Well, he says Abraham, he stresses Abraham because he came for the heirs of salvation. That's why. Now, the devil's hold on us was through the fear of death. Look again at 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The death of Christ defeated the devil, according to this text. How? By paying the debt in full, Jesus removed the ground of the devil's accusation against us. And what was the devil's accusation? The ground of his accusation was our guilt. In this way, the Savior delivered us from the fear of death, which the text calls lifelong slavery. Slavery to a fear of physical death. I do not believe someone who tells me they have no fear of death, have never experienced the fear of death. Every child of Adam has a fear of death, physical death, but also spiritual death. That judgment that is written upon our hearts, the judgment that is written there, every time your conscience is aroused, it is a spy within your breast pointing to the righteous judgment to come. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, you know within your conscience. Every time your conscience strikes you, stings you, that is an evidence of a greater judgment. That judgment in your heart is evidence of the great day of judgment that is to come. And Christ's death and resurrection removes the sting of death. O grave, where is thy victory? The cradle, the cross, and the empty tomb are all one salvation wrought by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so, once again, children, Christmas leads to Good Friday, which leads to Easter, which leads to Ascension, which leads to Pentecost, 
death destroyed, life begun. The death that Jesus died for us. You see, death is the fiendish power the devil held and wielded and still holds and wields in the hearts of those who do not know Christ. He could accuse and he could say to you, before you came to Christ and you thought about death, he could accuse you and with justice because of your guilt. And yes, we deserve death. But do you trust in Christ? Was Jesus born for you? Did he live for you? Did he die for you? Did he pay the debt for you? Did he rise for you? What, do you still fear death? It may be, Christian, that there's a natural apprehension as you think of death because it's an experience through which you've not yet passed. But in a certain sense, you have. You died with him. You've been raised with him. You continue to die daily. As Spurgeon said, there's just one more death to die. In a very real sense, you already are so well prepared, even for that experience, by daily dying with Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear death if you believe, trust with all of your heart in Jesus Christ. Satan's accusations have been answered, and they have been answered once for all. And that is why Jesus came. There was a German pastor who wrote a little book. I've never seen it, but I've seen it referenced by Adolf Saffer. And the name of the book was, I Feel As If It Was Good Friday. And of course, the point, the aim of the Christian's life should be to behold constantly Christ crucified for us. Satan comes and he says, you sinner, you vile sinner, you guilty wretch. You deserve death and eternal death. Yes, that is what the fall of Adam brought, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Death and eternal death. But then we say, look, my soul, look, my soul, to Jesus Christ. Look to Good Friday. Look to the cross. Look to his shed blood. Look to his resurrection from the dead. He was condemned in my place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus Christ died my death for me. There is the death of death in the death of Christ. To use the language of old John Owen the Puritan. And therefore Satan has lost his right to condemn because Jesus, believer, was condemned for you in your stead, in your place, as your substitute. And that's why he can use the word help there for those who are tempted in verse 18, when he says, for because he himself has suffered when being tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. That word help, the word means to take hold of. It means to help, yes, but baetheo means to come to the aid of. It means timely help, if you will. In Matthew 15, that word help is used. Do you remember when the woman from Tyre is seeking help for her daughter comes and says to Jesus, Lord, help me. In Acts 16, 9, when the man from Macedonia in vision comes to the apostle Paul, come over and help us. The authorized version in this place and one other translates the word succored, capturing the idea of sustenance and God's tender care. Or the idea is like this. 
He took responsibility for us. And that is why we need not fear death. The Lord is our helper, the one who came with timely help. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. Timely help. And he has you. He has you, believer. He has taken responsibility for you, believer. He was born for you. His obedience in life was for you. His crucifixion was for you. His resurrection was for you. He will come again for you. Do not fear death when your trust is in life himself. Your Savior has preceded you right into the devil's lair, and he has destroyed the devil. So you, do you fear? Fear and guilt go together. Do you know Christ is the one through whose righteousness sinners are justified, your guilt is removed, and with it clothed we may stand before God boldly, no longer fearing death. We sing it also in that great hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice with Heart and Soul and Voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Maybe someone here has been singing these great hymns all of your life and you've never understood you were singing the gospel. You were singing this text and others. Would you like to be free from the fear of death? Trust in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. Augustus Toplady, we sing the Toplady hymns here. Oh, how our congregation sings the Toplady hymns. But on his deathbed, He was told that his pulse was weakening. And he said, why, that is a good sign that my death is fast approaching. And blessed be God, I can add that my heart beats every day stronger and stronger for glory. And so died the writer of Rock of Ages, whose life was established on the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, says, the devil's power is erected upon our crimes, whereby he becomes the minister of divine vengeance. But a crucified Christ hath bruised the head of this old serpent and wounded the prince of this world. He hath displaced him from his power, snatched from him the ground of his indictments by canceling the law upon which his accusations are founded and despoiled him of his office by satisfying divine justice which conferred an authority upon him of executing divine vengeance. The accuser of the brethren is cast out and destroyed him that had the power of death and that through his own death. Yes, that's true. Through his own death. That's why he came. That's why he was born. Through his own death, the accuser of the brethren who would say to you, you deserve to die. You are under condemnation. The accuser is cast out. Christ has destroyed him that had the power of death by his own death on the cross. Praise God. That's Christmas. But also, fourthly, I told you four things. He came to be our priest. The whole book of Hebrews is about this. We can only say a few things, but verses 17 and 18, he came to be our priest Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so we are told that Jesus Christ was born, he came in order that he might be our priest, our high priest, and his human nature, Christ suffered for you, and in doing so, he qualified for eternal priesthood. And the text tells us that as our high priest, he propitiated, he offered his own bloody sacrifice so that the boiling mud showers of the wrath of God might not be poured out upon you who believe and trust in him but were poured out upon him in the place of sinners, my heart can hardly begin to preach what I feel when I think of Jesus Christ, that little baby born that he might grow into manhood and go to the cross and there the God-man pay the price by propitiating, satisfying the wrath of God. And let me tell you, my friend, either Christ has satisfied or you will pay the price forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. If your trust is in Christ, when he went to the cross, his infinitely valuable sacrifice paid the debt as if it had been forever for all who trust in him. And that's why we're told bulls and goats could not take away sin. And that's why in chapter 10, verse 4 of the book of Hebrews, we have the the familiar Uh, words, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, behold, I come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. A body was prepared for Christ so that he could fulfill all to which the bulls and goats pointed but they themselves could never have removed sin. Only one qualified, that's the point. You could not qualify. No sacrifices in the Old Testament could qualify. They could only point to the one qualified. How could you approach the blazing glory of the high uplifted and wondrous, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God without your high priest who shed his blood for you? All the fury of God's wrath was upon him. Aaron goes once per year into the most holy place and sprinkles the most holy place with the blood of atonement. Christ sacrificed himself once for all. It will never be repeated in order that you might be delivered from your sins. And that's why the text tells us he provides help for the tempted. That's that word, timely help. Christ's victory over every single temptation because he was without sin. He fellowshiped in our sufferings, which enables him as one who identifies with us as a true human being without sin, a true human being, the God-man, without moral struggles, that is to say, without moral failure, it, it enables him to identify with our moral struggles because he was fully man, yet without sin. And it brings a twofold help, the forgiveness of our sins and the power to overcome. And so he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He wears your nature on the throne. His true humanity is as real as his deity. He came as a man, intercedes for you in the flesh. You may confidently entrust yourself to him. He is God He is man. He came to care for his relations. And that is why he suffered. 
and this is the ground of your confidence. And he knows how to send the right grace at the right time. Don't attempt to blend Christ's righteousness and your own as if you had any trust in Christ alone, the God-man through whose righteousness we are accepted by God. Well, that's why he came, according to this text. You know, the riches of God's Word is such that we could have turned to text after text after text after text after text, and we could have seen this is why he came, and this is why he came, and this is why he came, and here's a nuance on it, and because the one who came was the infinite God. But this text tells us he came to suffer for sinners. He came to identify with us by assuming human nature. That he came to destroy death by suffering death for us. And he came to be our high priest. So do not suffer, suffer sever the birth from the entire plan of salvation. The virgin-born Savior who came was incarnate to live in obedience to the law, to die in the place of sinners, to rise from the dead, to ascend and be our priest, and yes, to come again. It is all one salvation that he has achieved. You know, at the end of his magisterial book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, J. Gresham Machen points out the fundamental tenet of modern religion is this. The fundamental tenet of modern religion is that man can save himself. Give us the moral and spiritual values of the Christian religion, we are told. The teaching and example of Jesus, that's all we need. We needn't bother with what he did, with what did or did not happen, so long as we find God in the depths of our souls. That's what the modernist says, the modern theologian, the modern professing Christian often it sounds so sweet, doesn't it? Oh, who cares what really happened? As long as we have God inside of us, who cares what really took place? As long as we feel good. And I'm afraid things haven't changed much since modernism in Machen's day, and since Machen in his thoroughly scholarly fashion battled against those viewpoints. But listen, Says Machen, the writers of the Gospels were not intending to write inspiring ideas divorced from history. No, they were writing facts, an account of things that really happened in the real world of history. They were writing facts, gospel, good news. Now, it is that good news that we are proclaiming to you today. The incarnation and the virgin birth are a part of the whole plan of salvation that constitutes good news. These are facts. Jesus came into the world to do this for sinners. So let's not sentimentalize Christmas. Christmas is about sin. Sin that would have sent us to hell. Christmas is about sin and death and hell and the incarnation of the Son of God and the blood and the gore that was required to redeem us. Do you know him? There is no hope without Jesus Christ, and I dread to hear of your death if you have not trusted in Christ. Bow before him as a criminal against his law. Abandon your self-sufficiency. Christian, continue to abandon your self-sufficiency. We have none. 
Surely you know that if Christianity is anything, if Christianity is anything, it must be everything. You cannot sit on the fence. Come to Christ by faith and God will receive you. By Christ alone, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.